Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news information and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I am, a, I am Carol Weidel, a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. You are, your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WART possible. Hi, I'm Gil Halstead. I am a former member of the Wisconsin Education Association Council and the United Faculty and Staff. This week, we learn about an important labor action by UW nurses, discuss the impact of the abortion rights decision on labor, explore the impact of the teacher shortage on Wisconsin schools, learn about IBEW's recent organizing win, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Scandalo. Bomba. Year 2000. Units getting stronger. Earlier this week, nurses met with Alan S. Kaplan, chief executive officer of UW Health. He told the nurses that under no circumstances would the hospital voluntarily recognize the nurses' union, SEIU, Healthcare Wisconsin. He also indicated there was no point in further discussions on this issue. Earlier today, Labor Radio interviewed Colin Gillis, a nurse at UW, and Mary Jorgensen. Technical difficulties prevented us from hearing their words directly. We asked Colin and Mary how the nurses responded to the hospital's refusal to agree to voluntary recognition and the administration's decision to refuse to talk about it further. The nurses responded that over the next few weeks they'll consider their options, noting that the attorney general did say that the hospital could voluntarily recognize the union. When asked if a strike was an option, both responded that, quote, unfortunately, yes, unquote. At this time, the nurses have no specific action in mind. They noted that the key issues motivating nurses to join their union were their commitment to patient safety. Patient safety is dependent on proper staffing and current staff are hemorrhaging. They are also they also emphasize the lack of any long-term retention plans. They also thought that conditions have deteriorated over the last couple of years. The nurses concluded their interview with this comment. Without collective bargaining, without a voice, there can be no progress regarding the quality issues at the hospital. Thank to nurse, thanks to nurse Colin Gillis and Mary Jorgensen for their interview. A contract negotiation between the local Red Cross and its workers drag on. Organized labor is getting the word out. Area workers for the American Red Cross represented by AFSCME Locals 1205 and 1558, representing Red Cross employees in Wisconsin and Iowa, have been working for almost a year without a contract. So, workers have joined in solidarity with them. And this week, on Wednesday from 10 to 2 in downtown Madison, and this morning, at the Memorial Union on the UW campus, fellow union workers passed out leaflets at Red Cross blood collection drives, informing the public of the Red Cross workers' demands. Labor Radio talked to some leafleters on MLK Boulevard in Madison as a rainstorm hit on Wednesday. Henry Brown of AFT Wisconsin was there. 
Red Cross workers deserve fair across the board wage increases. They deserve basic workplace protections. They deserve dignity in the workplace like everybody deserves. And, you know, we're, we're here because we want to help them get it. Harry Richardson of AFSCME Local 171, the local representing the blue-collar technical workers at UW, explained what he knew of the situation for area Red Cross workers. We're here today to show solidarity with AFSCME sisters and brothers who have been getting a raw deal from Red Cross for at least the last 10 years. They have been poor managers, harassing staff, not treating people very well. Their real wages have gone down, working conditions have declined. They're not good employers for the city of Madison. Barbara Smith, a member of AFT Local 4848, explained why she was there leafleting in the rain on Wednesday. We need to support each other. I mean, we all depend on a safe blood supply and health services, and it's just simple self-interest, but also when workers are in struggle, we need to stand with them, and that's why I'm out here. That was Barbara Smith of AFT Local 4848 speaking Wednesday while leafleting in support of Red Cross workers. Leafleting continued today on the UW campus. The South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE, has issued a statement saying, in part, the Red Cross is bargaining in bad faith. All workers deserve livable wages, decent benefits, and time off to spend with their loved ones. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. In addition to the Red Cross workers, Collectivo union members also need the support of the community. IBEW Local 494 and Collectivo workers are calling on community supporters to help them win a fair first contract in negotiation with Collectivo. The Wisconsin Alliance for Retired Americans is coordinating the effort. Here in Madison, the mobilization will take place Thursday, August 11th, from 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., starting at the State Street store, moving up to the square, and then out to Monroe Street. All are welcome. For more information, call 414-949-8756. As a new chancellor leaves California to take the helm at the University of Wisconsin, UW workers want her to bring some of her former employers' health policies with her. Greg Jabosky reports. In May, UCLA School of Law Dean Jennifer L. Manukin was named the new chancellor at the University of Wisconsin, replacing Rebecca Blank. Yesterday, the university welcomed the new top boss on Bascom Hill with free ice cream for everyone. Manukin was also welcomed with a letter from a group of UW workers who want the university to tighten up its public health policy during the still ongoing COVID pandemic. Dan Fitch of the UW Workers COVID Response Task Force and University Faculty and Academic Staff AFT Local 223, or UFAS, was there. Fitch explained the origins of the task force. I mean, we've kind of had an ongoing group of folks in UFAS who've been focused on COVID since the beginning. We thought the least we could do would be to organize this summer with the new chancellor coming and write her a letter to say, hey, UCLA, where you're coming from, has all these great policies and mitigation plans. Maybe UW-Madison should take some of those ideas and run with them to make our community safer. The group spent a month writing a letter outlining its concerns. 
Fitch explained what he did yesterday. I handed the letter to the chancellor today at the ice cream social that was welcoming her to campus, and hopefully we'll get meet with her team. We'll see. I'm hopeful that there is a possibility for actual change to UW-Madison COVID response policies. Like UW, UCLA is a large internationally recognized public research university, but it has had very different systemic health policies during the pandemic, says Fitch, who outlines some of them. UCLA has kept their indoor mask requirements. They've kept their vaccine requirement, although, of course, there are exclusions for those who need it. And UW-Madison has completely dropped any attempt at convincing people to vaccinate. There's still vaccinations available, but at the beginning of the spring semester, uh, if you were not fully vaccinated, uh, you would have to do weekly surveillance testing. And that weekly surveillance testing was paused, I believe, in April and didn't come back. So the UW COVID testing took a dive, and we don't really have any sort of idea of what's happening in our community with COVID levels. We have the county numbers, and uh, they're not good. (laughs) So when students come back, we'd like to do more like UCLA. Fitch says there are policies already in place at Manukin's former university that can be transferred to UW. Uh, If the county numbers are high, we'd like indoor masking required. We'd like improved testing with surveillance testing. We'd like to publish the vaccination rates and the daily COVID testing data. That's something that used to happen that isn't happening anymore. UCLA is also doing daily symptom monitoring for folks who are on campus. And they're also doing better at remote access and improved accommodations for disabled workers and students. Yesterday, the White House declared monkeypox a national health emergency. Fitch feels that policy changes are needed to address not only COVID, but to be ready for any other health emergencies that may arise. We're talking a lot about COVID in the letter, but in the more general sense, we want stronger protections for public health for all vulnerable people, no matter what the disease or virus in question is. That was Dan Fitch of UFAS and the UW Workers COVID Response Task Force. The full text of the letter that was given to the incoming chancellor is available online and can be signed in support by anyone at bit.ly slash UW COVID letter. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash UW COVID letter. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabowski. IBEW Local 2304 won a big organizing victory at Madison and nationwide. Frank Emspach has a story. Workers at For Our Future voted to join the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 2304. They've just completed the contract ratification process. IBEW Local 2304 represents workers primarily at Madison Gas and Electric, as well as some clerical workers at Madison Teachers Inc and the staff collective at our station, WORT. Labor Radio spoke with Nate Rasmussen, president and business manager of Local 2304, and asked him to explain to us who are the workers at For Our Future. So For Our Future is a progressive community-engaged organization who organizes community leaders, uh, voters, and uh, just folks in the community around topics that are affecting our our world, frankly. 30 workers in Wisconsin, but nationwide, there are about 120 or 130. What attracted these workers to the IBW? Why did these people come to Local 2304? I think the workers are smart and engaged and have done their research and they did a little looking around and reached out to the IBEW. 
They know we're Madison-based and we're an energetic, democratic local union and thought that we were the right fit for them. For many years, Local 2304 has been involved in community outreach activities, as well as being an advocate for their members and for the community at the Citizens Utility Board. Workers and nonprofits would appear to be a world away from the utility workers. IBW 2304 didn't see it that way. Nate explains. Yeah, we met with the workers there and they told us about some of their concerns, you know, wages, job security, uh, layoff and seniority concerns, some about working hours and, and frankly, a whole list of other working conditions. And, you know, although we are primarily a utility local, these are the same things that we deal with all the time. We thought they were something that we could help them with and they're workers and whether they're utility workers or electrical workers or a different jurisdiction altogether, uh, they all have a right to be unionized and have a voice in the workplace and, and have a labor agreement. The organization of For Our Future, Starbucks, and many other places seems to suggest a shift in the way the labor movement is perceived. Nate Rapison has this to say. I think the next generation is open and, and excited to unionize. And additionally, I know with the IBEW, we're spending a, a good amount of resources on making sure that we can represent uh, any workers out there who, who want to be represented. So I think it's a, a combination of a few things that is kind of re-energizing the labor movement right now. Nate wanted to make one last comment. I just wanted to give a shout out to our bargaining committee. We had three frontline workers at For Our Future, Aislinn Bauer, Kyle Flood and Olive Rose, um, all from different regions of Wisconsin. And they poured a lot of their own personal time and a lot of energy into making sure those workers got a good contract. And it's really something they should be proud of. Um, we also had uh, Kim Moon and Sean Renz from the International, and we, we couldn't have done uh, what we did without them. That was Nate Rasmussen, President and Business Manager of IBEW Local 2304, discussing their recent organizing victory, bringing in 122 members from the For Our Future organization. I am Frank Emsbach of Madison Labor Radio. The Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade left the states to decide whether women have the right to reproductive health care. That includes abortions. Labor Radio Reporter Ellen Lalazern spoke with Labor Notes editor Alexandria Bradbury about the impact of that decision on workers and unions. One in four women will get an abortion, so most unions will have members who become pregnant and may wish to opt for an abortion. How will this impact working women? Workers who get pregnant pay a price at work. As unions, we want to fight to make parenthood something that is, that is welcomed and supported at work, but we know the reality is pregnancy discrimination is very real. Many jobs make it tough to get light duty or accommodations. Having a child and dealing with childcare and the need for parental leave. Statistics show that women in particular pay what they call a mommy tax. The loss of income between missed opportunities and missed hours uh, is significant. What can unions do in bargaining to help with this? Our health benefits are, of course, a, a key part of what unions negotiate and the change in the law represents a substantial change to your health benefits. If your health benefit covered abortion and now you can't get an abortion in your state, 
that's a substantial change to what the cost is going to be. And the News Guild has some good advice on this. I'm sure other unions are looking at this, too, on demanding to bargain over this substantial change to the benefits and what is it going to mean and what additional coverage should the employer extend for travel, for additional time, for paying out-of-network costs if you're now going to have to go out-of-network to go to another state. What are your thoughts about workers who may have duties that involve providing abortion services? For workers whose job involves performing abortions or assisting abortions, there are another set of risks that unions should think about. And for instance, postal workers or other package delivery workers may be delivering abortion pills. All kinds of healthcare workers who are in emergency rooms, for instance, might sometimes have patients who come in in an emergency situation where the appropriate treatment includes an abortion, like an ectopic pregnancy. In some of these states where the, the laws are criminalizing or putting at risk of lawsuit, anybody who plays any role in assisting an abortion may now be vulnerable to prosecution or to lawsuit. So another thing unions can do is defend them, bargain over protections, defending people's medical judgment, defending workers in performing their job and taking care of their patients and delivering their packages. How do you see this as affecting workers in low-wage jobs that may not have a union? Access to abortion even before this decision is severely constrained around the country. Most people have to travel. People are going to have to travel farther and go to more lengths. It will take more money. And every time they set up these loopholes where it's like, well, you need to see the doctor once and then go home and consider it and then come in separately, that's another day off work. People in low-wage jobs, people with few resources are, of course, disproportionately affected by those things. And that's especially Black and Indigenous and other people of color, disabled people, undocumented people. The, the same groups that are most vulnerable to all kinds of disasters and assaults will be hurt worst. In addition to what unions bargain in contracts, should unions be out front on this issue? The, the Labor Notes Conference recently, the first speaker in our opening session, Stacey Davis-Gates, who's the new president of the Chicago Teachers Union, gave a really thought-provoking speech about expanding the notion of who a union is defending. Essentially, that the union is potentially a fighting force on behalf of the working class. I think it behooves unions to take a stand on this widely and deeply felt issue. I think it also opens a way into a bigger conversation about health care. There are some unions that have for some time been talking with members when healthcare bargaining comes up, you know, you talk about your premiums and your prescription costs and your co-pays, but you also talk about why do we have an employer-based healthcare system in this country? How can we make part of our bargaining, not just, you know, let's keep our premium down this year, but also build consensus for Medicare for all. Do you have any closing comments? There have been a lot of people organizing unions in reproductive health jobs recently, including at various Planned Parenthood regions, the preterm clinic in Ohio that is an abortion provider there, as well as feminist and, and pro-abortion nonprofits and organizations. It's been interesting to see that there's a flurry of organizing, I think in part in reaction to the uncertainty and fear about the future. So organizing has become a big part of the conversation. And I, I think another thing the labor movement can do is to welcome those workers and stand up for them. That was Labor Notes editor Alexandria Bradbury, and I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Learn more about the USPS Shipping Equity Act and why union members are supporting it. Keith Steffen has the story. 
On July 19, 2022, the Postal Unions held a day of action asking union members to contact their congressional legislators to urge them to co-sponsor the United States Postal Service Shipping Equity Act. The act would allow producers and retailers to ship alcoholic beverages to customers through the USPS. Online sales of alcohol have expanded dramatically during the pandemic due to loosened restrictions, but the USPS has not been able to benefit from the increase in shipping volumes. Direct-to-consumer shipping of beverage alcohol products is not new, but the USPS is prohibited from shipping beverage alcohol directly to consumers in places where other carriers can. This limitation dates back to the Prohibition era, when beverage alcohol was illegal in the United States. Passage of the USPS Shipping Equity Act would generate millions in new income for the Postal Service, while ensuring safe, reliable, and affordable delivery to even the most remote areas of the country. In May 2021, Representatives Jackie Spire, Democrat of California, and Dan Newhouse, Republican of Washington, introduced the bipartisan United States Postal Service Shipping Equity Act, H.R. 3287. This bill would allow the Postal Service to ship beer, wine, and other alcoholic beverages directly from licensed producers and retailers to legal customers. H.R. 3287 has 44 co-sponsors in the House, 39 Democrats and five Republicans, although none are from Wisconsin. Senator Jeff Merkley, Democrat of Oregon, introduced companion legislation in the Senate, S. 1663, in May of 2021. The Senate bill has four co-sponsors, all Democrats and none from Wisconsin. This bill would give the USPS two years to develop regulations, ensuring that the Postal Service is prepared to safely deliver alcoholic beverages to adult consumers with appropriate identification checks. If passed into law, the bill could generate an estimated $190 million annually in new revenue for the Postal Service. NALC supports the USPS Shipping Equity Act and encourages all members of Congress to co-sponsor the bill, National Association of Letter Carriers President Frederick Rolando said. The Postal Service delivers to every address in the nation, while private shippers do not. This legislation would allow the Postal Service to expand its services, which benefits all Americans while providing needed revenue for the agency. In June, the NALC sent a letter to Congress co-signed by the other postal unions requesting that members of Congress co-sponsor House Resolution 3287 and Senate Bill 1663. The bill is endorsed by the American Postal Workers Union, the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, the National Association of Letter Carriers, and a number of other professional and industry groups. The postal unions encourage their members to contact their representatives and ask them to co-sponsor the bill. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. The International Association of Firefighters recently suffered a potential serious loss of bargaining rights over insurance benefits. The city of Racine filed a petition with the Wisconsin Employment Relations Commission, or WERC, saying the bargaining of most aspects are prohibited and could result in loss of insurance coverage. Labor Radio's Ellen LaLuzerne discussed the decision with Malin Mitchell, president of the Professional Firefighters of Wisconsin. 
The city of Racine objected to your proposals regarding health care for retirees, saying they were prohibited subjects of bargaining, and they also implied that the plan design is non-negotiable. Can you describe the outcome of this decision? The decision essentially said that a city can unilaterally take away what was already earned by 20, 30 years of service in your retiree health plan. So it's really a draconian decision that really has got to hurt police and fire here in the state of Wisconsin. It looked like this could have broader implications beyond just retirees. That's correct. But the way it reads and the way that our attorneys are advising us, it goes as far as saying that a city or municipality does not even have to offer any sort of health care plan by way of saying plan design is, is everything. So right now we can bargain over premium share, nothing else. So the question of whether or not you have health insurance at all is totally left up to the employer. The way that decision reads, yes. Now, would a city do that? I guess never say never. I mean, if a city is hiring police officers and not offering any sort of health care plan, you're not going to have a wide range of pool of applicants. I don't see that happening. So the implications of this is pretty broad ranging because it's for protective services throughout the state. It definitely has a statewide impact. And that's why, you know, our local scene, local 321, that's why we've petitioned a motion to intervene in Dane County. It's going to affect all 72 counties. Filed asking for a temporary injunction, which would put a halt to the decision until we get a petition for review via circuit court. We're still waiting to hear back when that hearing will happen. At this time, I don't believe we've heard back about where we are with the temporary injunction, so still waiting on that. Do you have any closing comments? Police and firefighters, none of us do these jobs to get rich. Firefighters were seen put their lives on the line every day for their communities by way of fire and EMS, as well as the police officers. So having some retirement security is important. It's important for everyone, but especially in jobs like ours, where we actually retire a little bit earlier than others because a community would be safe. You don't want a 60-year-old firefighter coming to save you. All our bodies break down. I'm 45 years old. I've been doing this job for 26 years. I can tell you, I am not as fast and as strong and as, as quick as I was when I got on this job at the young age of 20 years old. You know, father time... It's undefeated. So we need to take care of our firefighters and those that put their protective services, those that put their lives in line every day and make sure they have true retirement security. And retiree health insurance is, quite frankly, not a lot to ask. That was the president of the Professional Firefighters of Wisconsin, Malin Mitchell. And this is Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. And now we have the statistic of the week. The statistic of the week is the ratio of 351 to 1. That is the ratio between CEO and average worker pay in 2020 in the United States. While millions were jobless due to the pandemic-driven recession in 2020, CEO compensation at the top 350 U.S. firms grew 19% to $24 million a year on average, according to the Economic Policy Institute. A report from the EPI details how CEO pay cuts announced during the pandemic as corporations laid off millions of workers were largely symbolic. EPI authors Lawrence Michelle and Jory Kandra revealed that, quote, CEOs saw increased pay largely from vesting stock awards and cashing out stock options at a time of high stock prices, unquote. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gil Halstead. Thanks to editors Frank Emspach and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhard, Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Ann Ham, Scott McCulloch, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Widell, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks this week to Nate Carlin for engineering. 
Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of the IBEW Local 2304 WRT Staff Collective. And I'm Carol Weidel. We would also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the professor, Bill Clark. <laughs>